Amen. Let's bow and pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you praise and glory. We love you. We want to honor you this morning. You're the one we're trusting in. You're the one who brings healing and cleansing to souls that are stained with sin. Lord, we look to you in faith today, grateful for your grace, grateful for your resurrection, grateful for the power with which you have brought salvation to us. We wish we had more tongues, more mouths, more voices to give you the praise because you are so richly worthy and deserving of everything that we can offer, everything we are, everything we have. Lord, I pray that today, as we open your word, that as we seek to love you and to know you, we ask, Lord, that, that you would give us a hunger for your word, that you'd give us a desire to know you more. Give us a thirst for righteousness. Give us an eagerness to gaze into what you have revealed on the pages of Scripture. We pray for your help in this matter and that our hearts would be stirred to love you, to trust you, and to obey you today. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the New Testament book of Titus. We started last week a, uh, a new sermon series through this little letter. The gospel had taken root on this little island called Crete. And the Apostle Paul left one of his associates, a man named Titus, to do the work on Crete of organizing and establishing the church there. And the first thing on his agenda was to establish local leaders. These leaders are called elders in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. They're called overseers in verse 7. I'm just going to read this passage, our text this morning, Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So that's simple enough, right? The church needs leaders, of course. But here's the catch. Not everyone qualifies to serve in this position of leadership. According to God's word, there are biblical requirements for what kind of a man he must be if he is going to serve as a leader in God's church. And this makes sense given the seriousness of the task. I think I can illustrate it this way. In order to, for example, be on the fire department, you have to meet certain qualifications. Um, I'm not a firefighter, never have been, but uh, my youth pastor growing up, one of my best friends from high school, both of these men I have good relationship with, and they've told me all about what it requires to serve on the fire department. You have to have knowledge of procedures. 
you have to pass certain tests of physical strength, like you have to be able to carry 65 pounds of gear and climb a 100-foot ladder. Uh, You have to be able to drag a full-sized adult body to safety over a number of yards. You obviously can't be claustrophobic. You can't be afraid of heights. You can't panic under pressure. And you can't be physically weak. If you are, you just can't be a firefighter. Not just anyone can do the job. And listen, that's actually a good thing. We should be glad there's those standards. If your house is on fire and the truck rolls up with the lights flashing and my four kids hop off of the truck... Now, I love my kids, they're great kids, but you're in trouble. Because there's something that's very serious that's at stake. People can be harmed. Lives are at risk. There's critical work to be done. And it's the same way with serving as a leader, as an elder, as a pastor in the church. A person who does not meet certain qualifications must not hold this position. Because the spiritual life of the church can be affected. Paul's simple point in this text is that the church needs strong, healthy leaders. The church needs strong and spiritually healthy leaders. The essential qualification that Paul lays out here is that an elder must be, above all things, above reproach. He says this in verse 6 and again in verse 7, that he must be above reproach. So we have to ask the question, what does that mean? What does it mean? What does it look like to be above reproach? Does that mean, for example, that everyone likes you? Is that what above reproach means? That everyone approves of you, that everyone likes you, that no one has ever accused you of anything? Well, not necessarily. You see, according to Scripture, there are times when servants of God will, in fact, experience reproach. And not all reproach is categorically bad. For example, following Christ may bring reproach. Hebrews 11.26 says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Similarly, the psalmist cries out in Psalm 69 verse 7, it is for your sake, speaking to God in prayer, it is for your sake that I have borne reproach that dishonor has covered my face. Even the man who wrote this letter, the Apostle Paul, to put it bluntly, he had reputation issues. He was often slandered by those who claimed to serve God. He was treated in 2 Corinthians 6, 8 as an imposter. He was accused, as he mentions in Romans 3, 8, of doing evil. He was held, according to 1 Corinthians 4, 10, he was held in disrepute. So the mere existence of suspicion or the mere existence of accusations towards a man does not automatically disqualify him. That's not what Paul means when he says he must be above reproach. So what does he mean then? What does it mean to be above reproach? Very simply, it means this, that no one can bring a credible charge. It means that nothing sticks in terms of impugning a man's character and reputation. Obviously, no one is perfectly sinful except one man, Jesus Christ. But the elder must be a man who is exemplary. He must be someone who is characterized in his life as faithful. He must be a man whose authority has not been undermined or compromised by some disgraceful action or some pattern of sinful behavior. 
to explain what he means by above reproach, the Apostle Paul outlines for us in this text three areas in which a leader in God's church must be above reproach. We're going to look at all three this morning. And those three are the areas of his home, his character, and his doctrine. Number one, a leader in God's church must be above reproach in his home. Look in verse six. Paul writes, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Paul knows that a man's home is the proving ground for how he's going to lead in the church. So he must be above reproach as a husband and as a father. Let's look at both of these phrases because they're kind of difficult to interpret. First, he says he must be the husband of one wife. Now, this phrase also appears in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and it tends to cause a lot of disagreement. I admit this is a difficult phrase to interpret. It's kind of a sticky one. And there's multiple different views that people take on this, multiple views that are even possible according to Scripture. But I think it's important that we understand God's will for his church. So just because it's tricky or difficult or even painful, we don't want to sidestep this important qualification. So I'm going to invite you to think through this with me. We're going to take a few minutes and just kind of dive in and study this, and I hope I can make it clear. There's a number of different options as to what this phrase could mean. What does it mean, the husband of one wife? Option number one, some people ask, does this mean that an elder must not remarry after the death of a spouse? Is that what husband of one wife means? I don't believe so. Paul cannot be condemning remarriage following the death of a spouse because that sort of thing is clearly permitted elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul, the, the same author, actually encourages that. He encourages some to remarry if they've been widowed. So remarriage after being widowed does not bring reproach on anyone. That is not what the Apostle Paul is talking about. So we can take that option off the table. There's a second option. Perhaps this phrase could be indicating that an elder must be married and that he cannot be single, that there should be no single pastors. Let's evaluate that. While the normal pattern for most men in the world is going to be marriage, and while it does serve the church well to have leaders who can model faithfulness in this key area of life, um, not having a wife does not necessarily bring reproach upon a man. For example, if a pastor's wife passes away, I don't think Paul is insisting that he either remarry or resign from the pastorate. For example, the apostle Paul was single, and so was Jesus Christ, our Savior. And their singleness did not hinder their ability to minister. It did not bring reproach upon them that they did not have a wife. So I don't think that the apostle Paul has in mind this requirement of marriage in order to be a pastor. So we can take option two off the table. There's a third option. Perhaps this is talking about polygamy. Maybe an elder shouldn't you know, be living with three women at the same time. And while that's obviously wise and necessary, um, I think that this interpretation is also doubtful. And here's why. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, there's a very similar construct that's used to describe certain widows, women in the church, that they must be the wife of one husband. It's the same grammatical construction. And it's a stretch for us to imagine that in that day, a woman would have had several husbands simultaneously. That was unheard of in Jewish culture. It was a non-issue. And they tended to look down on women as second class. So it's unlikely that one woman would have had multiple um, husbands. Likewise, in Greco-Roman culture, which was the dominant culture of that day, 
um, their culture was predominantly monogamous. They would have seen polygamy as being a, a barbaric practice that was beneath them. So when we think about the meaning in 1 Timothy with reference to women, the meaning there has to be the same as the meaning in Titus. It needs to fit in both places. And so I think it's unlikely that the Apostle Paul is specifically trying to condemn polygamy and, and nothing else. So while polygamy is obviously immoral, it's obviously wrong because it violates God's design for marriage. I don't think that's what Paul is referring to here. When he says husband of one wife, I don't think it's just polygamy. So I'd like to take option three off the table. That brings us to option four, which is probably the most common, which is that this is referring to a man who is simply faithful to the woman that he is with. He is a one-woman kind of man who is characterized by faithfulness in his marriage. But I, I think this doesn't go far enough. Because if Paul was simply trying to prohibit adultery and, and infidelity in marriage, there's a lot of other ways he could have been very specific about that. The Bible is full of explicit teaching and prohibitions against that type of sin. Um, and in other places, like 1 Corinthians, for example, um, Paul points out that those who are characterized by immorality... Those who are not faithful in their marriage, and that's what characterizes them. It's an ongoing thing. He says that they're not to be considered believers, let alone given a position of leadership within the church. Paul writes, do not be deceived that adulterers, among other sins listed out, he says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that would, I think, be a little bit redundant to, for this to be simply referring to that. So while a leader must obviously be faithful to his wife and in this sense be a one-woman kind of man, I don't think that's the full meaning. I think there's actually more that the apostle is indicating. That leads us to option five. So hopefully you stuck with me to this point. I'm going to share with you now what I believe is the proper interpretation. The interpretation I take here is that the husband of one wife includes more than just fidelity, but it also includes the issue of divorce and remarriage. I believe that a pastor, an elder, according to scripture, must be someone who has not entered into a second marriage while his first wife still lives. Such a man would not be a one-woman man and would not be above reproach in this specific area. And while I'll admit this is not the popular view, it's not an easy view, it's not a new interpretation in fact, this interpretation can be found in the notes, in the margins of some later Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. There were scribes who were copying the New Testament who jotted down this view in the margins of the text, and I think they got it right. So the question comes then, well, why would Paul require this of elders? Why would remarriage after divorce disqualify a man from being a pastor? This view seems rather strict to us seems exclusive. Maybe it seems harsh. But rather than allow our culture's view of marriage and divorce to shape us, we need to look to the teaching of Jesus on this matter and submit to his authority. And Jesus teaches on divorce and remarriage in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three gospel authors record Jesus' words. I'll just give you Luke 16, 18, for example. Jesus says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. That may set off all sorts of question marks in your mind. Why would Jesus call that action adulterous? 
Why is it adultery to remarry after divorce? Well, let, let me point you to the logic of Christ's command. God does not recognize the divorce as valid. He still sees the man and the woman as one flesh. He has joined them together. He sees their covenantal obligations, those promises they made to one another as being still binding, no matter what that piece of paper from the state may say. That's why Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. The disciples in Matthew chapter 19, they felt the weight of this teaching. They felt the weight of this prohibition. And that's why they replied, if such is the case with a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. They realized there's no plan B. There's no, there's no out from this. It's till death do us part, for better or for worse. They realized how binding this teaching was. And I think Jesus upholds the importance of marriage, not simply because it's God's design and his will morally, but also because of what marriage is supposed to represent. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. And a minister of the gospel must not undermine the message of the gospel with his life. For a man to be in a life situation where his life has been marked by compromise on this point, that would undermine his ability to preach and teach this important command of Jesus Christ. It would undermine his authority and his credibility to uphold God's standard for marriage. But I want to be clear and just clarify, because this may be a new idea for some of you. It might be the first time you've heard this view uh, I want to be clear, the fact that God limits who can lead in the church does not mean that there are two different classes of Christians. It doesn't mean that there's some who are more righteous than others, that are, that are more acceptable to God than others. No, the ground is always level at the foot of the cross. Divorce and decisions to remarry wrongly, those sins can be forgiven. Those sins are covered by the blood of Jesus for those who repent and believe. And those marriages, whether they were, should have been entered into or not, those marriages can be sanctified, they can be blessed, they can glorify God. And they can be used by God to bring blessing to families and churches in the world. However, there may be earthly consequences that do include the loss of privilege, like the privilege to serve as an elder. And I think we see this in scripture. You remember Moses who led the Israelites. There's a time where God told him to strike the rock with his rod, and he did, and then water came out of the rock. Sometime later, God told him in a different occasion to speak to the rock, and water would come out. But Moses, in his anger, struck the rock a second time. And you remember what happened. Moses, because of that, was not allowed to enter into the promised land. There were consequences for his sin. You remember King David, he desired to build a temple for his God, but God said no, and he said, because David, you are a man of blood. Your son will build the temple. We ask the question, were Moses and David unforgiven? Were Moses and David somehow not experiencing God's grace? Absolutely not. But both of these men did miss out on a certain privilege. They were not called to do certain things as a result of their actions. Listen, the grace of God in terms of forgiveness and cleansing is not incompatible with consequences. And God is not obliged to make certain roles available to all. 
He calls men to serve as elders, not women. And he calls men who have lived a certain kind of life, who fit certain qualifications, to fill that role. And it's his church. He can do that. He has the authority to say who can and cannot serve as an elder. God's standard for marriage is lifelong, one-flesh covenant commitment. And those within leadership in the church, they need to be able to reflect and uphold that standard. But again, I do want to treat this issue with sensitivity because I know in a group this size, um, there's some of you I don't know, there's some of you I do know, but there's many in the church who have felt the pain of divorce. For those of you in the room who have personally experienced that, you've gone through the agony of a broken marriage. The last thing I want to do this morning is heap condemnation or guilt upon you if you have been forgiven by Christ. While the office of elder may not be open to you, Christ's righteousness clothes all who believe. In spite of any and all of our failures, his grace is greater than all of our sins. So rather than feel shamed, rather than than feel guilty by this teaching this morning, rather recognize the grace of God and be grateful for what he offers all of us at the foot of the cross. But I hope you can agree that our response to this grace that God offers, the grace that cleanses and forgives, our response to that grace is rather than presuming upon it, our response must be to worship him through the obedience of our lives to gladly submit ourselves to his word and to his will, even if it seems restrictive to some. So the qualifications for an elder or pastor are that he must be above reproach in his home, and that affects his marriage. But secondly, the way he handles his children. Look back with me in verse 6. He must be not only the husband of one wife, but secondly... His children must be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So the first phrase that we looked at, um, the husband of one wife, that's sort of a tricky one to interpret. And this one is a little bit as well. What does it mean that his children are believers? Does that mean that the children of pastors all have to be saved? That they have to be born again? Well, I want to dig into this a little bit. The, The Greek word that's translated here in the ESV as believers is the same word that is often translated as faithful. There's one word in the Greek language, pista, which can mean believing or it can mean faithful. It's, it's the same idea in the, in the Greek language. And there are many versions that actually translate this as his children must be faithful. There's about five major versions that render it this way. And I think that translation is actually better. Um, I think this makes the most sense both theologically and contextually in this text. If we insist that his kids must be believers, then we're making the elder responsible for something that is ultimately outside of his control. Only God can save. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So if a man's two-year-old is not yet believing in the gospel, or if a man's older child rejects Christ... That does not automatically invalidate his ministry. That would not necessarily bring reproach upon him. And I think we see this in the context. The last phrase in verse 6 clarifies this term, pista, which I think is faithful, by saying that the children are not open to charges of debauchery or insubordination. This simply means that his kids are not out of control. His kids are not rebellious. They're not defiant. They're not living lives of open and rampant disobedience because their dad is a good leader. 
His da- their dad is able to manage his home. And listen, this sort, of, this sort of faithfulness by children is possible even if they're not believers. It's possible for unbelieving children to respect and submit to their father if their father's a good leader. The parallel account in 1 Timothy 3 is helpful here. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5, that he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So we don't see the word pista in that text, but we see the idea that the elder, the pastor, must be able to manage his own home well. If he has submissive children, it means he's demonstrated responsibility and faithfulness in the home. It means he's above reproach as a father. It means, like Jesus says in Luke 16, he's been faithful with little and can be trusted to be faithful with much. So an elder must be above reproach, first of all, in the realm of the home. That's the first area in which an elder must be above reproach. There's a second realm in which a leader in God's church must be above reproach, not only in the home, but number two, he must be above reproach in his character. This is verses seven and eight. An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Paul tells us here that this overseer, this man who has responsibility over the church, is God's steward. He's been entrusted with something of great value and importance. And so it matters greatly. It matters what kind of man he is. Not only must he have competency as a leader in his home, but he must have character as a follower of Jesus. This is instructive for us because you think about what kind of leaders are we naturally attracted to? What is the world value in a leader? We tend to value powerful personalities, don't we? That's high on the list as far as the things that that we look for in a leader. We tend to look for impressive gifting, someone who has large amounts of talent and skill. We tend to be drawn towards good looks, and we're drawn towards results and people who make things happen. But while the world prizes charisma like this, Christ prioritizes character. That's what the pastor, the elder, must be, he must have. An elder must live out the truth of verse 1. If you look at Titus 1, verse 1, Paul says his ministry is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And then remember what he said. Their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. This godliness is important. First, Paul gives us a negative list, a list of what the elder must not be in verse 7. He must not be, first of all, arrogant. If a man is full of himself... If he's always promoting himself, if he's always right, if he looks down on others, then he shouldn't be your pastor. Jesus Christ demonstrated the ultimate humility when he emptied himself to save his church, when he washed feet, when he became a servant of all. And the leaders in Christ's church must be like their master. They must not be arrogant. Paul continues, they must not be quick-tempered. Is a man easily offended? Does he fly off the handle at the drop of a hat? Does every disagreement turn into a shouting match? Does he lack patience and grace with those who are difficult? Is it easy to push his buttons? 
If so, then he should not be an elder. It's never good to have a jerk for your pastor. Paul knows that. He tells us. He continues, he also must not be a drunkard. When we evaluate someone as to their fitness for ministry, we need to examine, does he run to alcohol for comfort or for escape? Does he need it? This could also include the abuse of prescription medication or illegal drugs. If there's a man who's controlled by a substance rather than being controlled by the Holy Spirit, then Paul says he's not above reproach in his character and he should not lead in the church. I think we can all agree to the wisdom of that. Paul says he also must not be violent. He must not be violent. He must not lash out at people. He must not be the kind of man who destroys rather than building up. He must not have a chip on his shoulder or resort to force in order to get his way. A man who behaves in this way should not be one who is trusted to care for the sheep. Jesus describes himself as gentle, as meek, as lowly. That doesn't mean he was wimpy. That doesn't mean he was soft or weak. Rather, it means that he controlled his strength and was sensitive to and cared for those who were broken and needy. And an elder must reflect the character of Christ. He must not be violent. And then Paul says he also must not be greedy for gain. Greed lives in the heart of both the poor and the rich. It's something that can afflict anyone. And the emphasis here is on the heart's desire. It's not really about how much a man possesses. You can have a wealthy pastor or a poor pastor. But the key is that this man must not see ministry as a means of gaining wealth. He must not see the ministry as a way to increase his possessions. If he does, then he's an idolater. He's worshiping the wrong thing. He's chasing the wrong thing. And he must not be granted a position of leadership and influence in the church. Because pastors are to lead their people to worship and value Christ, not to worship and value money. Paul also knows that this sinful vice, this greed for gain, is really the reason for so much destruction in the church. And it can really wreck someone's reputation. A person who loves money and pursues money is not above reproach. We also have to keep in mind that the world is, is highly allergic to this. They can smell it. They know when, when someone is preaching the gospel because of how it can line their pockets. They can see that in our leaders. We need to see it in leaders as well. So if any of these negative traits are characteristic of someone, then it shows he's not filled with the Holy Spirit. It shows he's not mature in his faith, and he is therefore unfit to lead God's people. So those are the negative descriptions, but then Paul gives us some positive descriptions as well. Paul tells us what he must be like in a positive sense. First, in verse 8, he must be hospitable. He must be hospitable. He must be someone who is warm-hearted towards people. The, the word here for hospitable means a lover of strangers. That you naturally go towards people who are on the outside. It means you are welcoming and inviting the kind of person who wants to bless the people he comes in contact with. This is the kind of person who opens up not just his home, but opens up his heart. You can be hospitable at church. You can be hospitable at work. You can be hospitable at the grocery store. You can be hospitable, obviously, in your home. It's a disposition of the heart. Hospitality is not just for women. This is not just a domestic quality 
Rather, this describes a man who has godly character. If we're evaluating a potential leader and we observe that this man is aloof, if he is cold, if he is distant and disinterested in people, if he's self-focused and selfish, then he's not ready to be a leader in the church. Hospitality must be evident. The church is the household of God. It's to be a family. And as God's steward, the elder is supposed to reflect the hospitality of God, the kind of God we serve. He's a God who loves strangers. He's a God who welcomes the needy. He's a God who embraces the outcast. He's a God who goes towards those whom he loves in the incarnation of Jesus. And he's a God who brings us into his family. So an elder must be hospitable. Secondly, he must be a lover of good. The kind of man who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Someone whose greatest joys are in the things that best display the goodness of God. Third, he must be self-controlled. If a man is a slave, a slave to his impulses, a slave to his his appetites and desires, if he's out of control emotionally, then his decisions and his reactions are going to wreck the church. Self-control is so important. It's a fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5. It's evidence that a man is depending on the power of God day by day, that he's fully submitted to the will of God, and that he's mature in his faith. It characterizes Someone who's submitted to the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit. Often we look at people and say, that man or that woman is so Spirit-filled. And we mean a number of different things by that. Maybe we're impressed by, by you know, certain things they say or certain things they do. But the Scripture would describe someone as self-controlled, as really being the prime example of someone who is filled with the Spirit. Proverbs says that a man with no self-control is like a city without walls. That's not the best kind of guy to lead in the church. He must be self-controlled. Paul continues, verse 8, that he must be upright. He must be upright. He needs to be the kind of man who does the right thing in the right way before men. No matter what the cost, he must be a man of integrity. He must be upright. He also must be holy, Paul says. He needs to be the kind of guy who doesn't just do the right thing towards men, but the kind of man who does the right thing before God. The kind of man who lives a pure life that is set apart from sin, set apart from the world. While obviously no man is sinless, it is possible and it is necessary for an elder to be free from the kind of defiling sins that stain the reputation of Christ. He must be holy. And Paul continues that he must finally be disciplined. He must be disciplined. He needs to be someone who will work hard, not lazy. He needs to be someone who will toil and persevere when things get difficult. He can't be a quitter. He needs to do the right thing even when he's tired, even when he's discouraged, even when there's opposition. The kind of man who doesn't take shortcuts, but is rather careful to continue doing the right thing in the right way, fully committed and dedicated to the task that God has assigned him. He must be disciplined. 
This is the list Paul gives us in terms of the character for an elder. Now, it's not an exhaustive list. I think this is a representative list. These are examples of what it looks like when a man is above reproach in his character. A leader must be above reproach, number one, in his home. A leader must be above reproach, number two, in his character. And then third, a leader of God's church must be above reproach in his doctrine. Now we get to doctrine, verse 9. It says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Listen, sound doctrine, holding to the truth, the true truth, the pure truth as it is revealed in Scripture, this is important for all believers. There's nobody who's off the hook in terms, of, in terms of needing to hold fast to sound doctrine. But this is especially important for leaders. I think I can maybe illustrate it this way. I have a, a cheap wristwatch I wear that tells me what time it is. If this wristwatch is wrong, it misleads one person. It affects me. But let's think for a moment if wherever the cell phone towers are for for Verizon or for AT&T, let's say that they calibrate their computer wrong. And all of you who look at your phone to see what time it is get the wrong time. That's not just leading one person. That's misleading countless numbers of people. Similarly, if a leader has wrong doctrine, it doesn't just harm him. It harms whatever people he has influence over. So a leader of God's church must be above reproach in his doctrine. Paul says he must hold firm. Verse 9, he must hold firm. This means he must be unswerving in his commitment to the truth. He must not be easily swayed. He can't be afraid of what people think. He can't be intimidated when some impressive person with lots of influence comes out with a new idea that contradicts God's word. He must not be someone who is distracted or deceived by the culture. He has to be willing to swim upstream and hold firm to the trustworthy word. He can't be intimidated, and he can't be confused. There must be a holy stubbornness about a leader in God's church that he holds firm. Specifically, he's to hold firm not to his own opinions, not to his own thoughts, but verse 9 says he holds firm to what? to the trustworthy word, the word as taught. So he needs to be someone who's been instructed, someone who has received the truth. He's no innovator who comes up with his own ideas. Rather, leaders in the church are called to receive, to believe, to guard, and to proclaim the truth as it's been handed down through Christ and his apostles. And we see the reason for this, the purpose. Why does he have to hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught, Paul tells us, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There's twofold reason. There are some who need to be taught. There are others who need to be rebuked. Some people simply don't know what God's word says or they don't understand what God's word says. And the leader needs to know and needs to understand so that he can help them, so that he can teach them, so that he can instruct them. But there will be others in the church who contradict God's word. They will go against sound doctrine, either in matters of theology or in matters of practice. 
And in either case, the elder needs to be prepared to rebuke them and to warn the church against error. As one Reformation pastor wisely wrote, a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering sheep and another for driving away wolves and thieves. Listen, it's not enough for a leader to have right doctrine. Hear me, it's not enough for a leader to have right doctrine. He needs to know what to do with it. He needs to know what to do with it. He must be a man of the word who is able to teach, but who also has the courage to confront sin and to confront false teaching. Otherwise, he will not be a faithful leader. So in summary, healthy churches need strong, healthy leaders the leaders that God approves of, the leaders that God desires to see put in position, positions of authority and influence and responsibility are men who are above reproach, above reproach in their home, above reproach in their character, and above reproach in their doctrine. So you might be sitting here this morning saying, okay, that's great, I don't disagree, but what does that have to do with me? Because I'm not a pastor, so this doesn't really apply to me. Or maybe you're thinking, well, that's great. We're not, you know, right now trying to call a new pastor. We're not voting on anybody next week. So this doesn't seem very necessary for me to think about. But let me offer this morning um, another view. I do think this is relevant for all of us. And I'd like to just very briefly, as we close, offer five points of application. So if you're taking notes, there's going to be five of these. Number one, I want to encourage you, in light of this text, because of what we've seen to be true, Expect faithfulness from your leaders. Expect faithfulness from your leaders. You, as members of the church, are responsible to uphold this standard. Jesus died for the church. This is his church. It's his bride. And we must not entrust his church to weak men with weak character and weak doctrine. If a church compromises on the standard for leaders because a guy's really likable or because he has a lot of talent or because we're just in a pinch and we need a warm body to, you know, somebody's got to step in. If we compromise on the standard, it will have disastrous results for the church. Some of you have seen it. You've seen it. So you need to expect faithfulness from your leaders. And uphold this standard. Secondly, I want to call you this morning to respond to this text by praising God for faithful leaders. Listen, God gets the credit when someone fits these qualifications. Men like this simply don't exist apart from the grace of God. This kind of man who fits this description is truly a new creation filled with the spirit bearing good fruit through the power of God. Nobody can pat themselves on the back and take credit for matching up to these qualifications. We are all debtors to grace. What that means is that God deserves the praise when there are faithful leaders. He's the one who's done the work in his servants to fit them and prepare them and mold them to make them into the kind of people who can display his grace. And then he gives them to the church. Ephesians chapter 4. God has given apostles and prophets and pastors, elders, to the church. I think all of us can look back on our lives and see how all of us have benefited from the faithful leaders that God has put in our path. 
And we ought to rightly thank God and praise him for that. So praise God for faithful leaders. Number three, third application. Pray for leaders to remain faithful. Pray for leaders to remain faithful. I'm asking you as your pastor to do this. This is the kind of leaders that we as your pastors here at this church desire to be. And for the sake of the church, we covet your prayers that we would maintain these qualifications. Because the reality is none of these are permanent. None of them are. Someone who's qualified today could be disqualified tomorrow. So pray for us. Hold us accountable. Encourage us. It's honestly intimidating to read a text like this and then to stand up and preach a text like this because I feel the burden of it myself. But my confidence is what Paul writes in the book, or Jude rather, writes in the book of Jude, that he is able to keep us from stumbling. And sometimes we have not because we ask not. So let's ask God to preserve his servants. Pray that leaders would remain faithful. Fourth, another point of prayer. Pray that God would raise up more strong leaders for the mission. Listen, Jesus promised to build his church, and he said he would do it in the very shadows of the gates of hell. What that means is we need strong, godly men to lead. We need more elders. We need more pastors. We need more missionaries. We need more church planters. And this is the kind of man he must be if he is going to be used by God in expanding and establishing the church. And we want to see more of these kind of men raised up to serve here in this church and to be sent out from this church. And again, too often we have not because we ask not. Pray that God would raise up more men like this for the sake of his church and his glory. And then fifth and finally, I want to admonish you this morning. Aspire to grow in these areas yourself. Many of these qualifications are things that we can all grow in. The elders are to be exemplary in these areas, yes, but a pastor is not supposed to be that unique. He's not supposed to be some completely foreign creature from the other members in the church. The pastor is not some unicorn. He's simply a mature Christian who has a few unique gifts and has been called by God to be a certain part of the body. But I'm a member of the church just like you are. Stephen is a member of this church just like you are. And much of the things on this list that Paul shows us is simply what a faithful Christian looks like. Don't be a drunkard. Don't be arrogant. Don't be violent. Grow in hospitality, self-control, discipline, sound doctrine. These are things that all of us should aspire to grow in. So pray that God would develop these qualities in all of us. Leaders must be this, but they're also supposed to set an example an example that Christ desires for the church to follow and emulate. So while, yes, this applies very strictly to elders, there's a broader application here that this is for all of us. When we have a knowledge of the truth, Paul says in verse 1, it's supposed to produce godliness. This is what it looks like when people really know Christ and they really believe his word. They obey it and they are changed day by day, bit by bit, degree by degree, into the image of Jesus Christ himself.